Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're uh, thankful that this we can address this subject today, and we have your word. We're thankful for your Holy Spirit. It will guide us into all truth here, and, and we ask that uh, he would do exactly that. Uh, open our, our spiritual eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your word, and uh, my desire certainly is to uh, help your people today, to, to serve them as best as I possibly can. Uh, this is a very difficult subject. It can be a very technical subject, so I pray that uh, you would you would allow the hearers of the word to to understand, and and you would uh, give me understanding and the words that would best enable to communicate this this truth, and that we would all uh, be unified around this this great truth of the inerrancy of your holy word. May we understand the errors and how to combat them and, and deal with these and. So protect us from the error, we pray. May your word be faithfully and accurately proclaimed as we think about this vital subject. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As you can see on the screen there, I've given you a picture of a table. You probably already knew that. Of course, the table, that table there has four legs. And a table must have at least three legs in order for it to keep standing, right? Depending on how it's designed, uh, some tables can stand even with just three legs, if it's a four-legged table. But if you take away any of those three legs, then of course the table's going to fall. It's not going to do what it was designed to do. And, 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 and I'm using that picture there and, and the, the illustration of a table for a reason, because in, in much the same way, Christian faith stands on three legs, uh, two weeks ago, we addressed the, the, the inspiration of Scripture and as well as the infallibility of Scripture. So inspiration just is, is one of those three legs. That just means God breathed out the words of Scripture. The second leg is the infallibility of Scripture. In other words, it, it's, it doesn't make mistakes. Inerrancy is... This I well I'll explain a little bit more about this in a moment, but but it's just this idea it, it, addressing this question on the screen here: Are there any errors in the Bible? Of course, what you believe on that is going to have some some huge effects and implications in your life and in, in our church and in this world, which we'll look at in a moment. So take away just one, and like the table the divine authority of the Christian faith is going to fall because the foundation of the Christian faith is is the Bible itself. That is our authority. So what does Scripture then have to say for itself in addressing this question, are there any errors in the Bible? Well, there's plenty of verses that indicate the the total truthfulness and reliability of the Scriptures. God's Word is truthful and it is reliable. Uh, we'll get to Psalm 12 here in a moment, but let me just tell you one that Jesus said. Here's what Jesus said, John 17, 17. Jesus said that God's word is truth. God's word is truth. We addressed that one a couple weeks ago. It literally is truth. Everything it says is true. But even the very words themselves are indicating an absolute reliability and purity to them. For example, in Psalm 12, verse 6, if you have your Bible, you find it in your Bible, otherwise it's on the screen. Notice what the Bible says about itself here. It says, the words, notice words plural, the words themselves, the words of Yahweh are pure words. They're clean. The, the idea is they're absolutely reliable. There is a purity to the Scripture. And why is that? Because the very character of God is imbibed in the Word of God. Another one is Proverbs 30, verse 5, which says, Every word of God proves true. Uh, we could keep going here, but uh, you, you get the point, I hope. All we need is those verses alone to get this idea across that there are no errors in the Bible. And that verse there itself is indicating the truthfulness of every word that God has spoken. Every word God has spoken. 
is true because God cannot say anything except truth. So we need, at this point, I think, to really define what is biblical inerrancy. And I go to a very helpful website. Uh, You can find this for yourself. It's free. Many years ago, the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy uh, met together. It was, was, I think, a group of about 300 men. And they got together to nail down this very vital, important issue. What is biblical inerrancy? Uh, I'm just giving you a short little statement from their website, but uh, they they have many articles coming from this. But here's what they said. I'm quoting, Holy Scripture, being God's own word, is infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches, end quote. That's very important. Notice, it is infallible. It is divine. In other words, from God, it is authoritative. And by the way, in, in what matters? It's authoritative and truth in all matters that it writes upon. Whatever you see in the Scripture is truth. And that includes the scientific parts, the the geography parts, you you, you name it. Whatever is there is truth. Of course, the Bible's not a science book. It's not a geography book. It's not a philosophy book. But what it does, when it does touch on those things, it is giving us truth. And if you don't understand that one, uh, maybe maybe Al Mohler's quote here will be helpful to you. Al Mohler's the president of the Southern... Theological, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and he says this, and quote, Inerrancy is nothing less than the affirmation that the Bible, as, God, as the Word of God written, is totally true and totally trustworthy. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. In other words, in my own words, the Bible's always telling us the truth. It always tells the truth concerning everything it talks about. So we need to address some very sticky issues. Sadly, by the way, most of these sticky issues are coming from people who claim to be within the church. These are people who claim to be Christians, many of them claiming to be even evangelicals. Sadly, many of them are in seminaries, sadly. But uh, so let's just address these. Hopefully you'll find this helpful. Hopefully you won't find this to be too technical. But number one, the Bible can be inerrant and still speak in the ordinary language of everyday speech. Uh, and, and by the way, this is especially true in scientific as well as historical descriptions of facts or events. Uh, I've given you a picture on the screen here to, to describe just one example. Uh, I've heard some Christians attack the Bible because the Bible talks about the sun rising. Now, we all know the sun is not rising. The earth is rotating on its own axis as well as rotating around the sun. And as a result of this, it appears that the sun is rising. Now, we know that. Uh, And so when the Bible was written... Of course, God knew that. He's the one who made it that way. So it doesn't mean there's errors in the Bible when the Bible speaks in this kind of ordinary, everyday speech. It's just the Bible is describing a a natural phenomenon coming from the speaker's observation. Uh, Another one, example that might be helpful. A lot of times... uh, so-called scholars and, and, and liberals, too, do this. They'll attack the Bible based on the numbers in the Bible. So, uh, for example, a reporter could say that 8,000 men were killed in a certain battle. Does that mean the reporter actually went out and counted every single person on, laying on the ground? No. Uh, it... it it's not necessarily implying that he went out and counted every single person and got every, everything exactly right. So you have to understand the limits of truthfulness would depend then upon the, de- the degree of precision that is expected by the listeners uh, as well as implied by the speaker himself. And so you'll, you'll see various aspects in the Bible with numbers. Numbers often are just rounded off. Okay, but That doesn't mean it's an error. We, we, we know it's rounded off. 
Uh, and we do this ourselves all the time, right? Uh, for example, I might say, uh, well, I drove about 10 kilometers to work. Well, what if you were 9.8, or maybe you went a little different way, a different way, the scenic route might be 11. <laughs> uh, is that wrong to say it's about 10 kilometers to work? No, of course not. It's a true statement, even though it is an approximation. We, we know that. When we speak that way, we're not meaning that it was exactly 10 kilometers. And so we should note that language can be vague at times. There's imprecise statements. But we know that the Bible does that sort of thing, but it's still true, just like we, we speak. So inerrancy has to do with the truthfulness, not the degree of precision with which events are reported. Number two, you need to be aware of this as well, that the Bible can be inerrant and still include loose or free quotations. So the original writers did not ordinarily imply they're using the exact words of the speaker or only those, nor did the original hearers expect an exact quotation in the reporting of Jesus' words or the apostles' words or a prophet's words. Okay, uh, so you, you need to be aware of that. But but having said that, we know Scripture itself says all those words, even though they may not be an exact verbatim quotation, we know they are inspired of God. Third thing you should be aware of is this: that it, it's inconsistency within it is in it is consistent. Sorry, with inerrancy to have unusual or uncommon grammatical constructions in the Bible using human language, after all. Now, some of the language of Scripture, of course, is going to be very elegant. Stylistically, it's, it's just beautiful. But then there's other things in the Bible, because we have different genres in the Bible. It, just, it might come across as, as rough and not so elegant or so beautiful. It's just using the ordinary, uncommon, grammatical constructions that, that we use. But that doesn't mean it's not inherent, just because it's using our language. So there's some current challenges and major objections that are happening, and, and have been happening for a long time, in regards to the inerrancy of Scripture. So let me address some of the ones that I've heard about. This is not exhaustive, but here's the first one that some, some people, even Christians, are saying, that the Bible is only authoritative for faith and practice. Now, hopefully you notice in our church's doctrinal statement, we, we have in our, our confession of faith, it says that we believe that the Bible is authoritative for faith and practice, both. But there are people who, who will limit it to, to only authoritative for faith and practice. So if it's talking about science or something like that, they'll say, well, it's, it's not authoritative in that regard. And so this is one of the most frequent objections raised against the Bible. This position allows for the possibility, then, of false statements in the Scripture. And so what you'll often see is advocates of this particular position, they'll say the Bible's infallible, but they don't like the word inerrant. So... So like a professor at a seminary, for example, a Bible professor might, might sign a, the, the a seminary's doctrinal statement that has the word infallible, but they won't sign a statement that has the word inerrant. In fact, I, I know of seminaries who've taken the word inerrant right out of their doctrinal statements because the professors won't sign it. They, they don't believe that the Bible is without error. So this, this, is, this is really important uh, that you understand this. So how do we respond? Well, the Bible repeatedly affirms that all of Scripture is profitable for us and that all of it is God-breathed. Hopefully you're familiar with 2 Timothy 3.16. Notice the word all, which I've bold underlined for you there. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And by the way, notice it's all profitable. The word all is also referring to, <clears throat> excuse me, also refers to 
profitable. All of it. So that includes the, the stuff that talks about science and other things as well. So it's completely pure, completely perfect and true. The Bible itself doesn't make any restrictions on the kinds of subjects to which it speaks truthfully. Notice it just says it's all true. It's all breathed out by God. It's all profitable. Uh, Another objection that is being brought up today is this, that the term inerrancy is a poor word, a poor term to use. Some people say the term inerrancy is too precise. Uh, That's one of the reasons why many like seminary professors, they won't like signing a doctrinal statement with that word in it. Why some churches have taken that word out of their confession of faith. It's, uh, some say the term inerrancy is not used in the Bible itself, therefore we shouldn't use it. <laughs> and so they, they, they say it's an inappropriate word. We shouldn't insist upon this term. Well, we notice in our church's confession of faith, we didn't use the word inerrancy. We just said the Bible is without error. It means the same thing. Uh, by the way, how do you respond to somebody who says, uh, you know, the Bible doesn't use that word, so we shouldn't use that? <laughs> well, first of all, the term inerrancy has been, you need to understand, it has been used for a long time, in fact, at least 100 years. Second, it's... There's words we use all the time that aren't in the Bible that are extremely helpful. I'll give you one that I find incredibly helpful. It's the word Trinity. Right? You don't find the word Trinity in the Bible, that, that God is one, but He's three persons. You find the concept in the Bible, of course, but you don't find the word Trinity. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't use the word Trinity just because that particular word is not in the Bible. By using that word, you can, you can shrink a very large conversation down to one sentence, really. It's a very helpful term. And the word inerrancy is also that way. Even though it's not in the Bible, it's incredibly helpful. A third objection is this, that we have no inerrant manuscripts. Therefore, talk about an inerrant Bible is misleading. Well, in reply to that objection, it, it first must be stated that over 99% of the words in the Bible, we know what the original manuscripts said. By the original manuscripts, I mean the ones that the prophets and the the apostles actually wrote. So we, we know, even in our English Bibles, even though English is not the original language, Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic was, we still know over 99% of those words so for most practical purposes, then, the current published scholarly texts of the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament are the, are the same as the, the original manuscripts. So when we say that the original manuscripts were inerrant, we're also implying that over 99% of the words in our current, present manuscripts are also then without error. And I find that comforting to, to know that we, we can know where the uncertain readings are. Most of them, you'll see, by the way, if you have a Bible like this, you'll see the little footnotes down on the bottom of your Bible where those, where those discrepancies are. So we should not say that God somehow made a mistake or he spoke falsely because there, there's these little minor discrepancies. A fourth objection is this. There's some clear errors in the Bible. By the way, I don't believe that, but that is what some people are saying, and you need to be aware of this. So let me suggest, by the way, every time you hear someone say this, when they say there are some clear errors in the Bible, here's a suggestion to respond. Just ask them a question. Can you show me one? Just ask them that question. You don't have to be obnoxious. You know, be kind, be gentle, compassionate to them, because most people are just ignorant. They're just regurgitating and telling something that they've heard from someone else. 
they don't actually, most people couldn't, if you ask them that question, could you show me one? They can't show you one, most people. So, what you can do is just go through a careful reading of a literal English translation, and that will usually answer people's questions. And if not, then there's plenty of good conservative commentaries that will be able to help people. See, there's only what, what, what we see in the Scripture is only apparent contradictions, apparent errors. There are no errors. There just appears to be to some people. And so there, there's usually a good answer to that. I think a, a historical perspective on this particular question would be helpful. See, you need to understand there's no new problems in Scripture, right? We've got like some 2,000 years of history, of church history, to go on here. The Bible in its entirety is, is over 1,900 years old. We're, we're approaching 2,000 years now. And those alleged problem texts have, have been there, of course, that whole time. And, and the Bible's been attacked that whole time. And praise God for those who stood up for the truth of God's Word that is without error. So throughout the history of the church, then, there's, there's been this firm belief for almost 2,000 years now that the the scriptures without error. These, these things have been addressed. We're just standing on the shoulders of a long line of men and women. So what happens then if we deny inerrancy? If we deny this truth that the Bible is without error, what happens? Let me just give you some very serious problems that you will have, your family will have, the church will have, if we deny inerrancy. Uh, I've got all these, all four of these from Dr. Wayne Grudem. wrote a wonderful systematic theology book that's been very helpful to me. Here's the first one. He says, if we deny inerrancy, a, a serious moral problem confronts us. Here it is. May we imitate God and intentionally lie in small matters also. Well, hopefully you know, where's that coming from? There's this idea in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, which tells us that we're to be imitators of God. Well, the Bible tells us to be imitators of God, but think about this. If God is a liar, then should we be imitators of someone who is a liar? Well, of course not. So uh, denial of inerrancy implies that God intentionally spoke falsely to us. That God knew what He was doing. But if this is right for God to do, then how can it be wrong for us to do? It's not right for us to lie. But if God lies, and we're supposed to imitate Him, do you see the quandary here? <laughs> I hope you do. Well, that puts us in a very sticky situation, between a rock and a hard place. Another point to consider is a problem with denying inerrancy is this. If inerrancy is denied, we begin to wonder if we can really trust God in anything He says. Whoa. So does that mean if, if there's errors in the Bible, can I, can I even trust my eternal life? Can I, do I have assurance of salvation in heaven? I mean, that, that's how, how serious this can become. So once we become... Come, become convinced that God has spoken falsely to us, then we have to realize that God is then capable of speaking falsely to us. Which, we, of course, we know that He's not. The Bible says God can't lie. But then that's going to have a... If that's true, it's going to have a harmful effect on how we view God. Can you actually trust God? Well, of course you can't. Third... If we deny inerrancy, we essentially make our own human minds a higher standard of truth than God's Word itself. Whoa, how dare we become the ultimate authority here? That's, that's the issue. So we must not say that we know truth more certainly and more accurately than God's Word does. Because we don't. God's the ultimate authority. He's put His authority in His Word. He's told us to listen and obey it. Number four, if we deny inerrancy, then we must also say the Bible is wrong, not only in minor details, but in some of its doctrines as well. 
should be obvious that the doctrine of the Bible or the doctrine of the Word of God is, is also an important doctrine. So a denial of inerrancy or this idea that the Bible's without error means that we say that the Bible's teaching about the nature of itself is false. It, this, this teaching that it's truthful and it's reliable is false. So these are some major doctrinal concerns we find in Scripture. So here's some deductive evidence. All right. So if you've ever seen, uh, ever taken logic or studied logic, read a logic book or anything, you'll know they often do these this ABC thing. So if if A is true and B is true, then you end up with C as your conclusion. Okay. So so stick with me. Here's the logic. All right. What is this based on? It's based on God is true. God is true. It has to start there. Because God's the one who breathed out all Scripture. So it's based on Him. He's true. We know that. And if you know the second one, then you're going to end up with the conclusion. Here's the second one. That God is the one who breathed out the Bible. So if God's true, He breathes out the Bible, then the result has to be the Bible then is true. You see the logic there? I hope you do. All right? That has to be the conclusion. But if God's not true, then the result is going to be that the Bible is probably going to have errors in it then, right? So that's where it starts, my friends, and that's why it's important. Well, let's move on to another dicey issue <laughs> that we need to address. Can only Bible scholars then understand the Bible rightly? Do you have to be a Bible scholar? Do you have to go to seminary and have a doctorate degree in theology? Or do you have to go to Jerusalem and study Hebrew in order to understand the Bible? Well, the Bible addresses this. We're going to look at several scriptures here that will help answer this. And so what we're, what we're talking about here is this is this issue on the top of the screen here. Is the Bible clear? One of the characteristics of Scripture is the clarity of Scripture. So anyone who's begun to read the Bible seriously is going to realize that there's just some parts of the Bible that are hard to understand, right? So some parts of the Bible are easy to understand. Some, boy, I, you know, there's some even after being saved over 30 years now, I'm I'm just kind of starting to grasp them, start to understand them better. Hopefully every year that's going to keep going for the rest of my life. But it'd be a mistake to think that most of Scripture or just Scripture in general is difficult to understand just because we don't understand you know, some parts. In fact, the Old Testament and New Testament frequently affirm that Scripture is written in, in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood. And by the way, able to understood just by ordinary Christians. So, we'll look at some scriptures to prove this to you, all right? So here's the question. Does the Bible affirm its own clarity? Is the Bible teaching the truth that it's clear? Well, the Bible's clarity and the responsibility of believers generally to read it and understand it are, are emphasized and I'll give you an example to start with here. I want you to see what Moses tells the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6. I've underlined some key text. Go to the next one. <laughs> there we go. Deuteronomy 6, verse 6 says this, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down, and when you rise. Notice two key words there, the word teach and the word talk. You say, well, what's the point? Well, all the people of Israel, all the people, because Moses is not distinguishing, he's not saying, hey, only you Levites, <laughs> only you scribes or teachers of the law, only you teach. No, he's talking to everybody, and he says, all of you, should be able to teach and talk of the Bible. All the words of the Scripture. 
They're, they're to teach them diligently to their children. So the parents were to have enough understanding then so that they could discuss the words of the Bible just in the everyday normal activities of their life as they're walking by the way, as they lie down, as they rise. In other words, just as they go throughout the whole day. They should know the Bible well enough because the Bible is clear that they should be able to teach their children. Look at another one, Psalm chapter 1. So hopefully you're already in Psalm. Go to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm 1, verse 1. You're familiar with this, but, but notice it again. It says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. We'll just stop there for now. Notice Psalm 1 is telling us some things. It tells us that the blessed man was somebody who, according to verse 2, meditates on God's law, on the Bible. Notice how often? Day and night. It's a daily meditation. It's a, it's a meditation throughout the day. And it's assuming the ability then to understand Holy Scripture rightly on the part of those who are then meditating upon it. There's that assumption there that they understand it because the words are clear. I'll give you another example. Turn over to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. You need to understand something about the character of Scripture. We'll, we'll see it here in Psalm 19. The character of Scripture is said to be such that even the simple can understand it rightly and be made wise by it. Because look at verse 7. Verse 7 says that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Notice the word simple there, because this is key. The Hebrew word there for simple, by the way, doesn't merely mean somebody who's lacking intellectual ability. The idea in Hebrew is that somebody who lacks sound judgment. It's someone who's prone to making mistakes. Somebody who is easily led astray into error. That's the idea of, of the simple person, at least in, in Hebrew. And so God's word here is so understandable, it is so clear that even the simple person, even somebody who is the simpleton, the easily led astray person, can understand the Bible and become wise. That's what God's saying. And, and we all should find great encouragement in that. By the way, I'm not saying you're all simple. I believe you have, you all have discernment in various levels and ways, okay? But I, I find I find great encouragement in this because there there are times I know in my own life where I have been easily led astray. I, I could be classified as a simple person at least at that moment, but God's words telling us, telling me and us, hey, good news, you don't have to have a PhD in Bible to understand it. You can be a wise person. So in a day when it's common for people to tell us how hard it is to interpret Scripture rightly, we'd do well then to remember what Jesus said. Jesus would often make... Well, here, here's... Well, let, let me just... I'm going to show you what Jesus did say, but notice what Jesus did not say. I mean, Jesus didn't say, well, hey, you know, I, I see how, you're, how you arose with this problem. You know, the Scriptures aren't very clear on that subject, so, uh, um, you know, I'm just going to excuse you from your problem. Now, Jesus didn't say anything like that. Instead, His response is always to assume the blame uh, for the misunderstanding of Scripture was not with Scripture. Jesus always assumed the blame and He put it on the person. It was, it was their fault. 
Either they didn't understand or they failed to accept what was written in the Scripture. For, I'll, I'll just give you three examples, and they're all coming from Matthew, by the way. Here's what Jesus said. He said, have you not read? Have you never read in the Scriptures? And then he said in Matthew 9, go and learn what this means. In other words, go to the Scriptures is what he, he's always exhorting them to do. Those are just some of the sayings that Jesus said. Jesus never assumed the problem was with the Bible. Jesus assumed the Bible was clear and that they could understand it. But what was the problem often with the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees? The problem was they just failed to accept the truth. That's usually the problem. A lot of people have that problem. By the way, another argument for clarity is the fact that most of the New Testament letters are written not to church leaders, but were written to the entire congregation. What does that tell you? In other words, God, knowing the people in those church congregations, assumes, because he knows, that everybody can understand it. Those congregations, by the way, mostly made up of new Christians, didn't have PhDs in the Bible. <laughs> they were new Christians. No previous background in, in, in any kind of Christian society. They had no prior understanding of, of this kind of history. Many of them didn't even understand the culture of Israel. God's assuming they'll understand it. New Testament authors show no hesitancy in expecting even Gentile Christians to understand the Bible. Well, here's a question we need to think about. What are the moral and spiritual qualities needed for right understanding of the Bible? There are some moral and spiritual qualities that are needed. Not, not everyone can understand the Bible. So what are those? Well, the New Testament writers frequently state that the ability to understand Scripture rightly is more a moral and a spiritual ability. It's not an intellectual ability. Okay, For example, you'll see the scripture here, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14 says, the natural person, that's the unsaved person, the person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit residing within them, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, you must have the Holy Spirit within you to understand the Scriptures. What the Bible is saying is it will not be understood rightly by those who are unwilling to receive its teachings. By the way, that goes for the non-Christian and the Christian alike. There are people who claim to be Christian who are rebelling against God. They don't want to obey God. They, they know what God says in His Word, and they don't want to obey Him in some way. God's not going uh, to tolerate that. The heavens are going to be shut to those kind of people. So for anybody to understand the Bible, the Holy Spirit has to overcome the effects of sin in our lives. See, sin affects every part of us. Not just your spirit, not just your soul, but even your, your body, your brain. Everything's affected by sin. And so Holy Spirit has to overcome the effects of that sin for you to understand the Scriptures. So if you, that's, that's going to be one reason why some people don't understand it rightly. So let me give you a definition. I, I probably should have done this earlier. Definition of the clarity of Scripture. This one comes from Dr. Wayne Grudem. I quote, the clarity of Scripture means the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. End quote. So he's covering the unsaved and the saved there, Christian and non-Christian alike. So if you're not willing to follow what God says, you're not going to understand then. You're going to have problems there. However, having made that statement, we also, by the way, need, we also need to recognize that many people, even people who claim to be Christian, do in fact misunderstand Scripture. 
And if you don't believe me, just come into my study and grab five commentaries off the shelf on the same verse and see if those five commentaries agree with one another. <laughs> I can assure you, 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 you start getting more and more people together, the more and more disagreement you're going to get, uh, even in the commentaries. That's the way it goes. So why do people misunderstand Scripture? Why is that? Why do even godly people who write commentaries disagree with one another? Well, I think Jesus gets to the heart of the issue. Well, he starts to get to the heart of the issue in Luke chapter 24. And you need to understand something, that during Jesus' lifetime, even his own disciples at times failed to understand the Old Testament and even failed to understand what Jesus was teaching. There were times when this was actually due to their lack of faith. He, he would, he'd say, oh, you of little faith. Sometimes it had to do with their hardness of heart, and Jesus addressed that. For example, Luke chapter 24, verse 25. Look what Jesus said to his disciples. He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That gets to the heart of the issue. They were foolish. Why? Because they were slow of heart to believe what the Old Testament said. The Old Testament showed of a suffering Messiah. But they didn't want to believe in that suffering Messiah. They wanted to believe in a conquering Messiah. Get rid of the Romans. <laughs> they didn't understand that. And so in order to help people avoid making mistakes in interpreting Scripture, many Bible teachers over the years have come up with these principles of Bible interpretation. They're just simple guidelines to encourage growth in the skill of proper interpretation. Uh, you often hear the word hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, just a technical term for this particular field of study. You say, well, what is hermeneutics? It's the study of correct methods of interpretation, especially in regards to the Bible. So, <clears throat> basically, they come from the Bible themselves, but it's very helpful that that uh, if you've never studied hermeneutics, let me encourage you to do so. Please come and talk to me if, if you wish to study hermeneutics, the rules of Bible interpretation. I'll be happy to do so. But that's usually where, where people who, who claim to be Christians end up disagreeing. It's often over hermeneutics. But, I mean, how, how can a godly Christian believe in infant baptism and another godly Christian believes in believer's baptism? How... How do two godly people come to such different conclusions? Well, it's because of hermeneutics. How can a godly Christian be an amillennialist and another godly Christian be a premillennialist? It's over hermeneutics. Right? It, that's, that's usually where it happens. So the existence of many di disagreements about the meaning of Scripture Throughout history is reminding us then that the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture does not imply or suggest then that all believers are going to agree on the teachings of Scripture. That, that's not going to happen in this life. But when King Jesus comes back, he'll sort us out. But it does tell us something very important then. The problem always lies with ourselves. So if you're disagreeing with another Christian over the interpretation of Scripture, don't blame God, don't blame the Bible. You need to carefully look at yourself to start with. Look at yourself. Pray for God to give you wisdom, that He would open your eyes, that you do rightly understand the Word of God. Start there. The other thing is you need to be aware of is uh, if you're in disagreement with another Christian, you, you both could be wrong. <laughs> right? What, what do we usually assume, though? We usually assume the other person's wrong, and we're right. That's usually what happens, right? But if you're humble, you're going to say, well, at least one of us is wrong, and probably both of us could be wrong. That, that's what a humble person conclusion would be. So let me give you some practical encouragement from this doctrine. Why is this important, in other words? The clarity of Scripture, that is clear. Well, this doctrine has some very important, very 
encouraging practical implications that we need to think about. Uh, by the way, there's only two possible causes for disagreements. So, you know, if you're disagreeing over baptism or predestination or many churches disagree over church government, you know, what, why, why is that? Well, there's, there's two possible causes. Number one, it may be that we're seeking to make affirmations where Scripture itself is silent. So we, we come up with these beliefs or convictions, whatever you might want to call them, based not on Scripture, but something else. So in those cases, we should be re- ready to admit then that God has not given us the answer. Uh, we need to allow for differences of viewpoints, even, even within one local church. We need to love one another and, and allow there to be disagreement over the non-essentials. And by the way, that, that will often be the case with practical questions such as things like evangelism or styles of uh, Bible teaching or you know, you know, even things like how 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 big should a church be, you know, these sort of things. Okay. Another thing to consider is on, it, it is possible that we have made mistakes in our interpretation of Scripture. Could have happened for a number of reasons, by the way. Uh, how do we how do we get to wrong interpretations? Whoa, man, <laughs> I'm I'm glad I'm growing in the knowledge and being sanctified by Jesus Christ because man. Oh, Whew. you would not have wanted to hear me preach 30 years ago. <laughs> uh, I'm growing. I'm probably, I, well, I know I'm making lots of mistakes, but I know that, man, as, as I'm growing, I'm seeing a lot of the errors of my ways and things I believed as a teenager, for example. So here's what we need to consider. One, we may have used incorrect or incomplete data to decide a question. You, you may not have all the facts. So sometimes we, uh, th- this often happens when people take one verse and they rip it right out of its context. Well, you can make the Bible say whatever you want when you do that. Uh, another thing to consider is there's just some personal inadequacy on our own part. For example, pride. Pride could be like blinding us to truth. Greed or maybe a as it was for the disciples, you could have a lack of faith. could be selfishness, even a failure to, to, to put in the, the prayer and the study of, of Scripture that you need to understand it rightly. Don't go into God's Word expecting in your own strength to understand it. You've you got to pray every single time you come to the Scriptures that Holy Spirit would open your spiritual eyes to behold wonderful things from His Word. So in no case are we free then to say that the teaching of the Bible on any subject is confusing or it's incapable of being understood correctly. It's not the Bible's fault. What we should then sincerely ask God to help us and then go to the Scripture Search the Scripture with all your ability that God has given to you, and then believe that God is going to enable you to understand the Bible rightly. That should be encouraging. Because as we read our Bibles, we can read our Bibles with great eagerness, expecting God to reveal Himself to us. We should never assume that only those who know Greek and Hebrew or only pastors or Bible scholars or people with PhDs are able to understand the Bible rightly. It's not the case. You can understand it rightly. Well, that brings up the question then, well then, uh, if, if all believers can understand the Bible rightly, what's the role of a Bible scholar? What is the role of a Bible scholar? Well, if there is any role for a a Bible. So that, that's where we need to ask the first question, I guess. Is there a role for Bible scholars? Well, I believe the Bible addresses this. Uh, is there a role for those who some have specialized knowledge of the original languages, like Hebrew and Greek? I think there is. I think there's, a, there's at least a role for Bible scholars in at least four ways. Okay? 
Number one, Bible scholars can teach Scripture clearly. They can communicate the contents to other people. They, they can fulfill the office of teacher that the Bible is talking about. One of the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to people in the church is the gift of teaching. Praise God. You should praise God for these, these men and women whom God has given this gift to. For example, here's what the Bible itself says. Hebrews, not sorry, Ephesians 4, verse 11. It says that Jesus Christ gives gifts to the church. Here's some of them. He, get, he, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. For what purpose? Why are there teachers in the church? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And God's people should praise God. Praise God for this. What a blessing. I have been so richly blessed by God. Uh, some of my dearest friends are people I don't even know. <laughs> they're, they're sitting on my bookshelves. Many of them are, are dead and gone. They're with Jesus Christ in heaven now. But I, I, I love them dearly. And I praise God for them all the time when I read them. Because God uses these dear teachers to be such a help to me, to feed my soul. What a blessing. We should praise God for them. Number two. These uh, Bible scholars can explore new areas of understanding the teachings of Scripture. None of us know everything about the Bible, including Bible scholars. They don't know everything. Some of these guys, they'll spend 20 years on one book of the Bible, and then they write a commentary on it. Wow, what a blessing. I don't, have, I don't, I don't think I have... 20 years of my life to spend in one book of the Bible and then write on it. I, could, I couldn't do that anyway. God hasn't gifted me to do that. And so, but, I, but God has, has used all these various scholars or teachers to do that for us. And this exploration is often going to involve the application of Scripture to new areas of our lives. And so as various issues and problems come up in society, Bible scholars are v- very helpfully addressing these things things like transgenderism man i never thought about that 20 years ago (laughs) but it's all over the news now and and bible scholars are addressing this thing and helping the church to understand what the bible says about this stuff so they'll, they'll address difficult questions that have been raised by believers and unbelievers this is nothing new all throughout church history Bible scholars and teachers have been doing this for us. Praise God. A third role of a Bible scholar is this. They can defend the teachings of the Bible against attacks that often come from other scholars and and from people who might have some technical training in some area. Praise God that they do that. Many of these Bible teachers have been very helpful to me in understanding the attacks against the Bible. In fact, I'm using, I've been quoting some of them. I've been reading some of these guys. They're incredible help. So the role of teaching God's Word involves correcting false teaching. One must be able to not only give instruction in sound doctrine, but the Bible says we, especially leaders of the church, must be able to contradict the false teaching. I'll give you just one verse to prove this. Titus 1, verse 9 says this. And Paul's, as Paul is writing to Titus, who is a leader in the church, he says that we must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Notice there's an and. So it's not just teaching the right thing, but there must be people in the church who know how to refute, contradict false teaching. And sometimes Paul, Paul even named names as he would do that. Well, number four, last one, last one. What is the role of a Bible scholar? Well, they can supplement the study of Scripture for the benefit of the church. Jesus I think is a prime example of this. 
If anyone was a Bible scholar, it was Jesus. Even at age 12, it, it's, it's mind-boggling to think when, when his parents had lost him and eventually found him, even at age 12, Jesus is sitting in the temple teaching the Bible scholars. <laughs> and they're all amazed. Wow, this guy knows the Bible. Jesus is a prime example of this. And, and he did this in Luke chapter 24 with some people who were, who were Christians who didn't understand the Bible, and because of this they were discouraged. They didn't understand why Jesus of Nazareth had been nailed on a cross, had been buried, and he was dead and in a tomb. They didn't understand all that. And so Jesus meets up with them. Of course, they didn't know it was Jesus at that point. But look what Jesus told these men. Well, sorry, here's what the Bible says, what Jesus told them. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Bible says their eyes were opened. They saw Jesus even in the Old Testament. And then they were encouraged. Their, their hearts were burning within them. So Bible scholars often have training that will enable them to relate the teachings of Scripture to the rich history of the church, make the interpretation of Scripture clear, more precise, helps us to understand, help the, the meaning to be vivid, give us a greater knowledge of the languages of the Bible, the cultures in which the Bible is written. You and I know that we live in a different culture, a different time. There's these these barriers, if you will, that we have to overcome to understand the Bible rightly. Praise God for Bible scholars that help us to understand the geography of the Bible, help us to understand cultural aspects that are taking place in the Bible, help us to understand the language of the Bible, and, and much more. Praise God for them, because they can supplement the study of Scripture for the benefit of the church. Well, these are just four functions of Bible scholars that benefit the church as a whole. Hopefully they're benefiting you as an individual. And we can be thankful that they're performing this role for us. Sadly, many of the, the attacks against the Bible are coming from people who claim to be Bible scholars. We also need to be aware of that. And we need to know how to contradict that. But at the same time, we should praise God for His gifts to us and to the church. So we've seen that God has gifted us an inerrant word. We've seen that this word is without error because God is truth. We know His word there is truth because He's breathed it out for us. We need to praise Him for that. We need to read it and study it and meditate upon it so we can know this God of truth. And we can also praise God that His word is clear and we can, we can go to it relying upon the Holy Spirit to teach this Word to us. We don't have to think we need some Ph.D. or know the original languages. God has gifted us this ability because His Word is clear. And we can also praise God for gifts in the church in regards to pastors and teachers and the apostles and the prophets whom He has given to the church. Oh, we are so richly blessed, aren't we? Well, may God... Give us the grace to understand where these attacks are coming from, to know how to refute these attacks, and that we would stand strong in a day where so many people seem to be falling. It's a great spiritual battle that we, we exist in, isn't it? So may we take up the armor of God to defend against Satan's attacks. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Thank you for giving us your word. That you, thank you for inspiring it, breathing it out. We praise you that you are a God of truth. You are truth. You cannot lie. So your word, therefore, is true. It's without error. We're also thankful that it is clear. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes, our spiritual eyes, that we would behold wonderful things from your word, and that we would understand your word Protect us from error. Protect us from false teaching. Guard our hearts and our minds. Give us a, a great desire to know this truth, that we would read it and 
study it so that we would not sin against you. Give us a heart for you. That we would long after you like a deer pants after water when it's in a dry and weary land. May we have that kind of a spiritual attitude toward your word. Protect us from attacks from Satan in this world and our own indwelling sin. Protect us. We, we need it. We are so easily led astray. And we're so easily discouraged. So we ask that we would always keep the armor on, that we would be able to defend against the wiles of the devil. May we not love this world and the things in the world, but may we love you. And may we love you above everything, that everything else would just pale in comparison. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.